Well, good evening. Welcome uh, to the third uh, installment of a four-week series on the time between the Old and New Testament. And um, I was telling people today, they said, how's it going? I said, I think this is fascinating. <laughs> but everybody else seems to be asleep, so I don't know. I think they're getting a good nap. Seriously, it's, it's been fun to study this with you. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for bringing us together, and we're grateful to you for the blessings that we have. Father, as we pause and consider how gracious you've been to us, we are in awe and we are uh, just thank you. Lord, I also lift up our cares and our concerns and there are heartaches and grief and trials in our midst, and I pray, Father, that you would be near to those who are struggling, and I pray, Father, for your help, your healing, your guidance in all these things. I do particularly pray for our world and especially for the leaders of our nation, that you would draw their hearts to you. And Lord, we know that everything moves to your purposes, but I pray, Lord, that it would be in harmony with your purposes. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so here's our number for questions. If you want to text questions in during class, wherever you are online uh, watching this uh, live, you're welcome to text in questions. I'd like to answer as many as we can. We are talking about a, the 400-year period between probably the last book in the Old Testament's Malachi, and let's say it's approximately, really close, to 400 B.C. And then, of course, uh, you get the, obviously, Jesus comes in zero. You know, basically, that's not exactly true, but it's close enough. So about a 400-year period in between the Old and the New Testament. And we used a prophecy of Daniel. Daniel is prophesying near the end of the Old Testament, and God gives him a vision which Daniel probably does not understand, but he prophesies about four kingdoms coming before the Messiah comes. And he doesn't know what they are or anything, but he, he writes it down, and Jews for the next 400 years literally see it play out. And in our first session, we talked about the Babylonian Empire, the ones who conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and exported the Jews into exile in what's modern day Iraq, in Babylon in those times. And then, just as God predicted, the second empire comes along, the Persian Empire, and they conquer the Babylonians, and this happens throughout history, but they conquered them and they let the Israelites, the Jews, go back to Israel, and they allowed them to rebuild as such as they could the walls around Jerusalem that the Babylonians had destroyed and kind of build a temple, nowhere near as nice as Solomon's temple, but a little bitty temple. And this, this story is happening right at the end of the Old Testament. This is Ezra and Nehemiah and all those 12 minor prophets right at the tail end, most of them are prophesying and talking and working and preaching during this time, right at the end. And then the Persian Empire rules for about 200 years. So not quite as long, but almost as long as America's been around and a huge part of the world. In 332, that's the date that I'm gonna use because that's the date when Alexander the Great conquered Israel, the Judea, that area. In 332, the Greeks conquer the known world. And that area, all that green that you see is all the way from India on the right hand of this map 
over to Greece on the left and down into Egypt and up north into the stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, etc. today. All those areas were conquered by Alexander the Great. And when he died, this is the third great kingdom that Daniel has prophesied, that God has told him is gonna happen before the Messiah. When he died, his generals took over and they began fighting each other, but they began ruling the area where their troops were. So this is a recap, and I just want you to, uh, to remember that one of the generals was named Seleucus. Now remember, these are Greeks, ethnically Greek peoples. And Seleucus had the largest empire. He had a lot of troops. Ptolemy is another general, a Greek person. And I'm gonna leave the other two out because for our story, they don't actually matter. And so over the next couple of hundred years of Greek rule, the Seleucid dynasty, so Seleucus is the king and the emperor of his area and his son becomes the, in charge and his son becomes in charge and so it is a dynasty. In other words, this family continues to rule this whole area and so it's called the Seleucid Empire after Seleucus. Same thing happens with Ptolemy. His son begins to rule Egypt and then his son and then his son and it's called the Ptolemy's Empire, Ptolemaic Empire. And so these are Greeks and over a couple hundred years, you know, they begin to intermarry and so forth, but they bring a lot of Greek culture. And so finally in one, the date that we care about is 167 BC. The Seleucid king is called Antiochus Epiphanes. Here's a bust of his head and this says in Greek, Antiochus the king, the bearer of victory and the image of God, Epiphanes, the image itself of God. So needless to say, he had an ego issue, but he decided to stamp out the religion of the Jews. And we talked about this in our last session. Very difficult time for the Jews. A lot of Jews were killed. It became a death penalty to own a copy of the Old Testament, a death penalty to circumcise your children. The persecution was brutal during this time period. But during the, because of a family called the Maccabees, you may have heard of them historically, they rise up against the Greeks and the Jews actually overthrow Antiochus. And so they, from a pro, these dates are very approximate, but a basically from about 164 BC for the next 100 years until 63 BC, this is a map of Israel, Judea, that area of the world, and Jews ruled themselves for about 100 years. Didn't go well. I mean, their political system was about as crazy as the Israeli political system right now. I mean, it's just a lot of, of things going on. But this kingdom of the Jews having a little, a time of liberty anyway, they weren't ruled by foreign oppressors for a little while. So they've just thrown off the Seleucids, the Greeks. So the Babylonians, Persians, and the Greeks. And for this lesson, we're gonna stop and leave them in their happy little time of independence for a little while while we go talk about something else. And so before we get to the fourth kingdom, I wanted to take this lesson and just tell you about some really interesting things that are happening. Let me start by saying 
There are several sects that you're going to see in the New Testament that start at this time, in the 160s BC, and 160 years later, you will see Jesus interacting with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, not so much the Essenes, but they are historically there at that time. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees are all over your New Testament, and I just wanted you to know, they begin in this period of oppression, and they began as people trying to keep Judaism alive under oppression. So what I'd like to talk about in this lesson is something we don't get to talk about very often, is what were the Jews writing and reading during this period? So while they're happy in their independence for one more week, before the Romans show up, I'd like to talk about what were they writing and reading in this 400 year period. So the, they have the Old Testament, what's in your Old Testament, what's in the Hebrew Bible. But there are several really important things that happened and I'm gonna divide it into four categories and feel free to ask questions as we go through. But I wanna to talk to you about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written in this time period let's call it 200-ish BC, right in the middle of this period. And we'll talk about what they are and why they're important, but this is when they were written down. The Septuagint, or the Septuagint, and if you don't know what that is, that's fine, you will in a few minutes. That is a significant document, and it also was translated. It, it's a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Why into Greek? I think from our last lesson, you realize that after 200 years of Greek rule, everybody speaks Greek, uh, some Greek at least. I mean, the Greek culture. Remember we talked about Alexander not, didn't just conquer areas, he brought school teachers, he brought artists, he brought musicians. He wanted people to, to become culturally Greek and the world did become to some extent culturally Greek. Then you have a group of writings called the hidden writings. That's what Apocrypha means. And the Apocrypha you probably know best because these books are in a Catholic Bible. They are not in a Protestant Bible today. And so I wanna to talk to you about what they are and where they came from. And then something you probably don't know as much about, but they're fascinating. It's called the Pseudepigrapha. And this is a huge collection of writings that the Jewish, Jewish authors wrote during this time period of history. And pseudepigrapha, literally, is Greek word uh, pseudo, meaning false, and graphic, meaning writing, false writings. But they're false writings, not because they're not true, although they're pretty much not true, but they're called false writings because they're attributed to someone else. And when we get there, I'll tell you, it's sort of like I wrote something and said it was from somebody else, right? Plagi you know, basically took somebody's name and put it on it. So that's why it's called pseudepigrapha. So we're gonna dive in, and I wanna look at these four great uh, pieces of literature, bodies of literature that the Jews are doing. So why am I doing this? This is what the Jews, leading up to the time of Jesus, were writing, were reading, and were thinking about. These are not inspired. But when you get into the time of the New Testament, this is how Jews thought, and this is what they were reading at that time. And it helps us make more sense of the New Testament by knowing some of this. 
So let's start with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can see on this map, we've got, obviously this is Jerusalem and you have the, the hills, the mountains. Then you go down into the Rift Valley, down to the Dead Sea. And right at the north end is this, this village called Qumran. And right around Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And there is an excavated uh, community there in Qumran and most people, this is still a big detective mystery and has been for about 60 years. But most people think the people that lived at that community wrote these scrolls and hid them away. So let's talk about what they are. They are fragments or whole pieces of about 900 scrolls. There were 11 caves. So what these were is somebody took all these scrolls and for some reason put them in clay pots, and I'll show you one of the clay pots in a minute, and put them in caves and then sealed the caves up. And I mean, you could not tell they were there. Nomads have been doing this, by the way, for thousands of years there. They would store supplies in a cave up on a cliff and then they would cover it over it. I mean, you cannot tell it's there at all. And uh, unless you know where it is. Well, they hid in 11 caves, maybe more. There's still excavations going, trying to find more caves. But so far, 11 caves, 900 pieces of scrolls that they stored away. So here's two dates to look at. These scrolls were written about 200 BC. They weren't discovered, however, until right after World War II, between 1947 and 1956. These scrolls laid in these jars, hidden in these caves for 2,000 years. That's a big find. It's a big deal because of their age and how well preserved they are in the dry, dry air over there. They're important for other reasons as well also. Well, how did they get found? I mean, they're probably caves. I would suspect there are more caves with more documents in them. I don't know that, but there's no reason to think there aren't more, but you literally can't see it. Here's an example of this you can see because the caves are open, but this is what the landscape looks like over there. And when those things are sealed up, there could be a hundred caves and you would never see it. So how did they find it? Well, the guy on the right in this picture was herding some goats in this area, and that's very normal, Bedouin guy. And one of the goats gets up and instead of climbing after it and bringing it back, he throws a rock at the goat, trying to say, hey, get back here, you know. And he hears a crash, like pottery breaking. And so he climbs up thinking, ooh, maybe I found secret treasure or something. He climbs up and what has happened is the top of one of the caves has sort of caved in and made a hole. And his rock just coincidentally, he couldn't see it, his rock coincidentally fell in there, hit one of those pottery uh, uh, containers and broke it. So he gets there, he looks inside and oh my goodness, there's all this old stuff. Now these scrolls, some of them are papyrus, meaning they're paper. 
And so they're very, very delicate after 2,000 years. Some of them are parchment. Parchment is leather. It's skins and then written on with ink. A few of them are metal, and I'll show you one of those in a minute. But he basically found it, and then there's a long story that I won't go into here of the Bedouins started taking this and they realized they're writing on this. This might be old stuff, maybe somebody would pay for it. And so they start leaking it out to a, an antiquities dealer, an Arab antiquities dealer, and he starts selling it. So scientists start finding this and go, oh my goodness, this is very, very old. Where'd you get this? And so over a period of years, they end up getting their hands on the whole thing. Since it's after World War II, if you remember, Israel becomes a nation in 1947, 48. But base, and then they have a big war as everybody tries to stamp them out. But then they win the war. And so now that Israel's in charge of it, Israel is very interested in Hebrew writings that are found there because they're very interested in their history. And so today, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are owned by Israel. Here is an inside of one of the caves that's been cleaned out. So you get an idea of what this cave looked like. And on the right, that is one of the jars. This is what the jars look like that they had stored the scrolls in. They usually wrapped the scrolls up and stored them in those jars. This is uh, an example of a scroll. It's called the temple scroll because that's what it's about. And it, uh, I just wanted you to see one of the early pictures when they took them out. This is what they look like. And so they literally could fall apart. And it's been, oh, 50 years worth of, of scholarly work to unfold them, to x-ray them, to take the fragments and put them together. One of the early French uh, delegations took the pieces like puzzle pieces and they taped them together as like, oh, that's a very bad thing to do. You know, and so later, you know, then they, they had the technology to recreate it. You can look at the writing on the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's all online today. It's all in Hebrew. So it's probably gonna be pretty boring. You can also see translations of all the Dead Sea Scrolls into English as well. So this is an example of what the scrolls looked like. So what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Three basic kinds of scrolls. Some of the scrolls were copies of Old Testament books. And I'll give you some stats on how many of what books they found there. But for example, this book of Psalms, it's copies. They hand copied them, of course, at that time. Or the book of Deuteronomy, hand copied. So these are copies of Old Testament books. Another group of scrolls that were found there were scrolls that had to do with whoever lived at Qumran was a religious community. It was originally thought that they were a group of the Jews known as the Essenes. In any case, they were certainly a group of Jews who had gone to live out in the desert and they had all kinds, and we know a lot about them because we have their documents. It's sort of like their, uh, you know, their neighborhood association covenants, you know, or the rules of the club and very detailed. So we know a lot about them and how they lived and they lived very, very much in devotion to God, very strong and maybe some would say extreme in their beliefs very ascetic, a lot of prayer, a lot of fasting. They worked, 
They lived in a communal lifestyle together. So we know a lot about them because a lot of the documents were the rule books and documents about the community. So that's a second set of scrolls are about the community itself. And then there are some other scrolls that are just copies of other documents at that time. And we won't go into that, but that's also interesting. So for example, two of the more famous uh, documents out of the community scrolls. This first one on the left is called the Manual of Discipline. And I didn't bring any of this with you, but basically food, they didn't have much in the way of possessions. Not like they had a lot of money or anything. So the only way you could discipline people was pretty much food because that's all they had. They just, they, they ate and they worked and they prayed and that's kind of what they did. So for example, if you were found spitting you would go on, uh, a fourth of your food would be taken away for a week. And if you gossiped about somebody else, then you would lose half your food for a month. You know, I mean, it was extreme, you know, and so they were very serious sect. But this manual of discipline is written in Hebrew and it has all the rules for the community. The copper scroll is interesting for two reasons. One, it's on copper and it's rolled up copper really thin and it's got Hebrew letters on it. It is a treasure map. And as you read the translation of it, it tells you about all these treasures that are hidden, but doesn't tell you exactly where. This is made for an Indiana Jones movie. I mean, this ought to be an Indiana Jones movie. No one's ever found the treasure. I mean, they tell you how much treasure. They tell you it's... it's when I say they tell you where it is, they give you all these clues as to where it is, but you're like, we don't know exactly where that is. Maybe they did at the time. And so the thought is, either it's a hoax, or they really stored treasure in a lot of places and wrote this thinking they would come back and get it. Third thing, the books of the New Testament. And this is just a sample, but I wanted to give you an idea of what books of the Old Testament, I said New Testament, I meant Old Testament, what books of the Old Testament most copies were found. So for example, there were 39 copies of the Psalms, which meant that they read that a lot. I mean, they had made 39 handwritten copies of the Psalms that were in these scrolls. 33 of Deuteronomy. That's interesting because Deuteronomy is the law of Moses. And so they were very devout and intent on following the law of Moses. Um, First Enoch, I'm gonna tell you about that in a little bit, and Jubilees, those are not in the Old Testament. But there are a lot of copies of First Enoch and Jubilees. So I'll talk about that later. They are not in your Old Testament. But you see Genesis, Isaiah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. This is hardcore Old Testament law kind of stuff here, right? And so Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Job, First and Second Samuel, and then more. But these are the top 16 in terms of how many copies. So you can get a feel for, they were copying the Old Testament and this is, are the books that they probably read the most. And so you can kind of learn a little bit about them. Uh, so I'll tell you about Enoch and Jubilees later. They're not in your Old Testament. Probably the signature find in the Dead Sea Scrolls is what's called the Isaiah Scroll. One of these scrolls, not all of these scrolls were intact, and they have everything, the whole book. Uh, some of them are fragments, others are substantial, but there is one scroll of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a very long book 
in the Old Testament. It's 66 chapters. Uh, they didn't have chapters then, but I mean, it's a long book in, your te- in the Old Testament. It's a very, very long scroll. They found a completely intact Isaiah scroll. It is displayed in uh, the shrine of the book in Jerusalem, which I'll show you in just a second. But it is probably one of the signature finds, is a full scroll of Isaiah. And so when the Jews, uh, Israelis, I should say, when the Israelis were able to acquire this, this is part of their heritage, and I'll tell you why it's important. But by the Jerusalem, uh, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, they built a little museum called the Shrine of the Book. And when they say the book, they mean the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you notice, this is the outside of it on the left. That looks like the top of one of those jars. And so when you go inside, as you notice on the right, you notice this uh, grooves on the side. It's like you're in one of those jars. And then this is like the edge of a scroll. And then this is the Isaiah scroll. And of course, there are many, many other pieces of various Dead Sea Scrolls on display there. And so uh, the Israelis have, let's say, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's an important part of their heritage. And there's a separate museum there for the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's talk about a couple of things. One is, why are the Dead Sea Scrolls so important? Well, there are a lot of reasons for this, but I'll give you the simplest one is this. The, the Old Testament and the New Testament, let me preface this because you need to know that uh, uh, the magnitude. The Old Testament and the New Testament, for ancient books, and they're both ancient, very ancient books, there are, I mean, it's not even in the same universe. There are more copies of the New Testament and the Old Testament by orders of magnitude more than any other ancient document any other ancient document. There are 26,000 copies and parts of copies of the New Testament. I mean, these books were revered. They were hand copied through century, through millennia. And so these books are very well attested. Having said that, the oldest copy of the Old Testament was from 800 AD. Well, that's not trivial. That's 1,200 years old. And so the Old Testament that you have in English is translated from Hebrew copies from 800 AD. Okay? That's good. There's no other ancient documents that have that good attestation. So that's good. But here's the problem. The Old Testament was written much, much earlier than that, right? Depending on what scholars believe, some are liberal, some are conservative, but far, far before 800 AD. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls are copies of the Old Testament from 200 BC. They are copies that are one thousand years earlier than the latest copies that we had had. Do you understand the significance of that? That is huge. Now you can read the Hebrew Old Testament, not from 800 AD, 
but from 200 BC, a thousand years earlier, and you can compare them and say, how well did they copy it through that thousand years of time? And it is remarkably the same, remarkably the same. And so that is huge because it lends credibility that what you are reading in your Old Testament, or if you're a Jew, what you're reading in your Hebrew Bible is authentically what was written down way back when. That's really important for their faith. Okay, that's the main reason from a scholarly point of view. But I want to remind you that Muhammad lived 570 to 632 A.D. The Quran is written right around the end of his life, shortly, shortly after the end of his life. So the Quran is technically older than the copies that we had. Well, here's where the rub, and I'm just going to give you one example. There are many examples. And so in the Hebrew Old Testament, in your Old Testament, it reads that Abraham had a son Ishmael and he had a son Isaac. And God said the promise would go to Isaac. And when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, God intervened and said, I'm going to bless you through your son Isaac. That's not what the Quran says. The Quran says all that stuff happened to Ishmael. And so morally, they were, the, the accusation was made is that the Jews changed it. It originally said Ishmael and the Jews changed it. And so Ishmael and his descendants, the Muslims, are the rightful inheritors of this land. So you see the interesting moral and political complications. Well, for the Israelis, the Dead Sea Scrolls not only push your copies back a thousand years, I mean, that's unheard of, but it also shows that in 200 BC, those documents said Isaac. And that's centuries before Muhammad was ever born. So there are a lot of reasons that the Dead Sea Scrolls are really important to the Israelis. Dead Sea Scrolls have nothing to do with the New Testament. They're purely copies of the Old Testament written before Jesus was born, copied before Jesus was born. Does that make sense? That's the Dead Sea Scrolls and why they are so significant. So it's very interesting about that Qumran community of people and it's fascinating to see thousand year older copies of the Old Testament. It also gives you an insight into what the Jews were reading at that time. They were effectively, the Jews in 200 BC were reading the same Old Testament you are reading today. That's important to know. Question. So why were they storing them instead of reading them? That is a great question and, I, and it's a fascinating little story. So thank you for asking. Okay, no one knows, but in 70 AD, actually right before 70 AD, the Jews rebelled in 66 AD after Jesus. And there's a four-year war, basically. 
And the Romans, this is a Roman error now after Jesus, which we'll get to next week. But the Roman army comes in and they just start conquering people, one after another. They conquered everywhere. And in 70 AD, they conquered Jerusalem. And they tore down the new temple. And it's still gone today, right? That 70 AD was the last time there was a temple on the Temple Mount. It's been gone for almost 2,000 years. Well, this community, and I believe this is true, this, is, this makes perfect sense. They knew that the Romans were coming. They figured that it would be difficult for them, but they took all of their precious documents, put them in these jars, and put them in the caves and sealed them up, thinking that after the Romans came through and things settled down, they would come back, resettle their, their town, Qumran, and they would go back and get their scrolls. They didn't want them burned, which would, the Romans were perfectly capable. They tore down the temple. They're perfectly capable of burning all your, your Bibles, right? So they hid them, thinking they would come back. And for some reason, they never came back for them. So did the Romans kill them all? But, and, I, and this is conjecture, but I think it's, it's certainly true. They hid them because of the Romans coming through in 70 AD. Now the documents have been written in 200 BC and they've been using them for 200 years. But when the threat came, they hid them. And for some reason, were never able to come back and get them. Great question. Okay. I have read that there was a cache, of, a large cache of silver coins found with the scrolls. Why? Uh, that may be true. I do not know that for a fact. So I can't really speak to that. I will tell you, this may shed some light on it. So no, I don't actually know about that. I mean, it may be true. But I will tell you, I'll shed some light on that. There have been a lot of coins found at the Qumran site which is very interesting because we thought that they, and this is why it's a detective story. Who were these people? We know they were very religiously devout because we've got their, their rule books, right? And you thought that, well, they were very, very poor. Well, they were because they certainly lived very soon, but you found a lot of coins there. And then you also find a lot, there are a lot of date trees in this area. I know it looks like it's you know, the surface of the moon. But really, believe it or not, you can grow uh, date uh, trees there. They found a lot of date pits. And so it looks like they actually also had a little factory there where they would make date honey. Honey in Israel is from dates, and it is really good. And so there are all these pits as you excavated it and all this money. It looks like they made money for the community, you know, in common by selling date honey. And so a lot of coins have been found at the Qumran site, not because they were buying nice new clothes or anything, but they, they were apparently making money for the community uh, by, by having some commerce there as well. But I don't know about coins with the thing. But that lets you know that even though they were poor people and they lived very, very frugally, they did indeed have money to support the community. Okay, a little off topic, but similar. The Euphrates River is drying up and they are finding rooms underneath it. How do you connect that to biblical history and do you think we will find more biblical books under the river? Um, that's, that is a little off topic, but yes, that's interesting. Yes, I think it's, I don't know a lot about, uh, the, I just haven't read a lot about the theories of 
where the Euphrates has been over time and how it's changed course. So I don't know what will be found under there, but as things dry up, it's remarkable the stuff you dig up. As far as finding more books, I think that's a little less likely. Most of the great finds have come from, let me go back to a map and you'll, you'll see exactly why this is. Uh, actually, I'm gonna have to go forward to a map. Uh, I'll show you in a little bit. Uh, basically, most of the documents, by and large, have been found like around the Dead Sea, just desert dry as a bone and then many great finds down in Egypt. Dry, dry, dry. Could you find some in Iraq? Yes, you could, because you know there were Jews there for a long time in exile, so it's possible. The preservation of those documents is the tricky part. And so down underneath a river is not a great place to store paper. And so I, I'm just saying it's, it's, un, it's less likely to me, but yeah, absolutely, that's entirely possible. Great question. Okay, well, let's move on to the next category, the Apocrypha. This is a list of the Apocrypha. So what is, uh, what is uh, the uh, Apocrypha? Actually, I'm sorry, I skipped the Septuagint. Let's do it first because you need to know about the Septuagint to understand the Apocrypha. So what is the Septuagint or the Septuagint? It is the name of a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Why is it translated into Greek? Because around 200 BC, Jews, most Jews, remember, they've been deported and some of them have come back. Some of them stayed in Iraq, Babylon. The Greeks are oppressing them and some of them moved around. And as the Jews dispersed around uh, the, that area of the world, Generations go by and your kids go, hey, we've got to learn to speak Ugaritic or we've got to learn to speak Greek. And Jews didn't speak Hebrew anymore. And so to be able to read their Bible, well, you can't translate it or they couldn't, you know, write it, copies into 25 different languages, but everybody spoke Greek. And so the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It was translated in about, the, the date usually given is 285 BC. When, what's happening in 285 BC? Seleucus and his kids are ruling, the Greeks are ruling. And Ptolemy and his kids, the Ptolemaic dynasty, Greeks are ruling in Egypt. Okay, so remember, we have the Greeks in charge at this point in time. One of the Greek kings in Alexandria was named Ptolemy, they're all named Ptolemy, like the Herods are all named Herod and like the Caesars are all named Caesars, kind of a family dynasty thing, right? And so one of the Ptolemies, Ptolemy Philadelphus, was king in Alexandria. Alexandria had a magnificent library that has since been destroyed with scrolls copied from all over the world. He would send scribes out and ask people, can we copy your documents, your religious documents from Persia, your religious documents from India, and make copies and bring them back to the Alexandria Library? Well, he wants a copy of the Old Testament, the Jews' book as well. Now, this part's legend and is certainly not true, but it's interesting, and it tells you how the name came about. And so, it, according to legend, he got six Jews 
from each of the 12 tribes, 72 Jews together. And he put each one of them in a room by themselves. And he said, you guys all speak Hebrew. I want each of you to write, read the Hebrew and write it in Greek. And miraculously, all 72 copies agreed. I don't think you can get 72 people to agree to anything. But according to the legend, miraculously, it all agreed. And that is the Septuagint, which means 70. Don't ask me about the 72. But basically, it, according to tradition, you've got 72 scribes that translated it. And there is a Greek copy of the Old Testament. And it happened in Alexandria, Egypt. Well, here's the interesting thing. The Jews in Alexandria, well, let's say they were liberal, okay? They were. They were liberal Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. I mean, they obviously knew Hebrew, so they could translate it. They were intellectuals. They were college professors. But they were very liberal, and so they not only translated the books in the Hebrew Old Testament, they also translated some other Jewish writings that had been written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And these books are called the Apocrypha. So I'm done with the Septuagint. Septuagint's important because it's a Greek version of the Bible. And it's important because it tells you that Jews at that time spoke Greek more than they did Hebrew. And that's also why, by the way, even in the time of Jesus, your New Testament's not written in Hebrew, it's written in Greek. And that's because people could read Greek then. It was a sort of a universal language. They translated some extra books into Greek. And so if you get a copy of the Septuagint in Greek, you will see all the Old Testament books there that are in your Bible, and you will also see these. These are not inspired. I mean, people differ on that. I, I'm giving you my opinion. There are some Catholics that believe these are inspired and certain historical figures thought these were inspired. Protestants do not think these are inspired and that they were written after the book of Malachi, like at the end of the Old Testament. But these guys went ahead and translated them anyway. They thought these are really good books. You know, this is great stuff here, very interesting. And so these books were part of the Greek Old Testament. Fast forward just a little bit, after the time of Jesus, Let's go to about 400 AD. So what happened after that? Well, it's the Roman era. And the Romans have been around now for 400 years by this time, right? From the time of Jesus. They're ruling when Jesus is born. Been around 400 years. Well, over 400 years now that the Romans are ruling the world, more and more people think, well, we don't need to learn Greek anymore. We probably better learn Latin. And so most of the people at that time read Latin. I mean, this is 400 years, right? And so most people read Latin. So church decides, and there's a guy named Jerome, hey, we should translate the Bible into Latin because that's what most people, the priests, it's not like you've got a printing press. You don't have a lot of these. You're still hand copying. But we're gonna put them into Latin. And he does. And when he translated it, he had some Greek manuscripts. He had some Hebrew manuscripts but he had the Septuagint. Doesn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're buried, right? So, but he's got the Greek copy and he said, hmm, wonder what these extra books are in here for. I think I'll translate them. I think I'll put them in my Bible. And he put them as a separate little section in the Bible. And he believed that they were inspired. 
And so they became part of the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate, that Latin translation that he made, the Catholic Church used for the next thousand years, all the way up until the time of Martin Luther and those guys. That was the Latin Bible, and they are in that Bible. And so today, in English translations of the Catholic Bible, they're still there. And they're marked off, and they're called the hidden writings, the Apocrypha. Some people think that they are also inspired, and consequently, uh, somebody was telling me about this the other day, if you read certain Catholic writings, you'll see quotations from these books, as like you and I would quote the Old Testament. Most people, by and large, do not. Protestants do not think that they are inspired. These books, however, did show up in the first editions of the King James Bible in 1611 out of tradition, and they put them off at the end. But quickly after that, in the 1700s, they stopped translating those and putting them, publishing them. Let me put it this They stopped publishing those in Protestant Bibles. So that's what the Apocrypha is, and that's why they're in Catholic Bibles, but no longer in Protestant Bibles. Yeah, question. What are the rules or the procedure to determine whether the books are inspired or not? Why did the Protestants differ from the Catholics? Well, this is, gets mildly complicated, and I'm going to generalize. So those of you scholars out there, there's a lot more to this. But basically, it comes down to, let me put it this way. If you look at a Jewish Bible today, it does not have these books. So if you go pick up an English copy of the Hebrew Bible or get you a Hebrew Bible out of a synagogue and look at it, it does not have these books. The Jews who canonized the Old Testament and recognized what was inspired, what was not, did not think these were inspired books. However, they did get translated into Greek by those guys in Alexandria, right? And Jerome picked it up and put them in uh, the book. And there are many Catholics today that would read that and say, those are great books, they're part of our tradition, but they're not inspired. So I'm not telling you every Catholic thinks these are inspired. But when the Protestants began to translate the Old Testament, they thought, our Old Testament ought to be what the Jews think is the Old Testament. Right? And so Martin Luther and those guys look and they go, the Jews don't accept these books as part of the Old Testament, neither do we. And so they took the Jewish Old Testament and made it into what you read today. So let me just try to be clear. I know this gets complicated. What you are reading in your Old Testament, in your Bible today, is the same thing that's in a Jewish Bible today. They are exactly the same. These books are not part of a Jewish Bible, not part of Protestant Bibles. But you can read them and they're interesting and they are part of a tradition, if you will. But these books were written in between the Testament. And here are a couple of samples. Uh, Ecclesiasticus. These, some of these books are very much like Old Testament books. Like if you read that, you could assume you were reading Proverbs. And sure enough, it's a lot like the book of Proverbs. Here's another from Maccabees. First and second Maccabees are historical books about the Maccabees revolt in 167 BC. Well, that's way after the Old Testament ended, but they're books of history. And so they may very well be true, but they're not considered to be inspired. They would be true like maybe any other history book you read. 
Might be true, might be inaccurate, don't know. But it's not inspired by God. But the Apocrypha is useful to read uh, for many reasons. So that's the Apocrypha, and that's why it's in a Catholic Bible, and it's not in a Protestant Bible. And they're not in the Jewish Bible that Jews read today. The last group is probably the most interesting, but the least, least close to anywhere near being inspired or reality. I mean, they're not even close. The pseudepigrapha, and this is a tiny list of pseudepigrapha. These are the ones I thought you might know about. But there's like two massive volumes of false writings. And a lot of them are called false writings because, I'll just give you one example. The Book of Enoch, and there are several of them, but first and second Enoch. You know who Enoch is. He lived way, way, way back in the Old Testament. And in Genesis chapter five, it says Enoch walked with God. He was righteous and he was no more. God took him off the earth. Enoch's one of the guys that never died. Well, some enterprising Jewish guy in about 200 BC thought, hmm, wonder what he saw when God took him to heaven. That's what this book is about. And he writes up that Enoch saw this and Enoch saw that and God told Enoch this. And he publishes it written by Enoch. It's like no one thinks it was written by Enoch. You know, Enoch lives 6,000 years ago. This document comes from 200 BC, but it sells better that way, right? I mean, I'd love to put, you know, a famous author on my books and then they would sell really well. That's why it's called a false writing. It's attributed to him. So, for example, this is a piece of First Enoch. And I've, used, I've quoted First Enoch, not because it's true, but I want you to know this is what Jews were reading and thinking in that time. So, for example, one of the things that Enoch theoretically saw were these archangels. These are the names of the angels who watch, who watch over humanity. Surael, some of them you know. So let's get to Michael, one of the holy angels. He's obedience and he watches over the people and the nations. Gabriel, you recognize him from the New Testament, one of the holy angels who oversees the Garden of Eden and the serpents and the cherubim. This is all made up. But it made for very interesting reading and Jews read this. If you remember, a copy of this was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not because they thought it was scripture, but they thought this is really good, right? It's sort of like if you're reading the Left Behind series. You know, it's sort of like, oh, this is good. I think this is true. Okay, that's great. But it's not in the New Testament, right? Same with this. But I wanted you to know that th these things can be very out there. Enoch is one of them. Here's another interesting one. The book of Jubilees is fascinating. It's, it really talks, it talks about a lot of things. But one of the things it talks about is why did the flood happen and who are these giants in Genesis chapter six? He says, here's why the flood happened. It was because the watchers, and if you get on the internet, there are so many conspiracy theories about the watchers. Well, the watchers are angels who are supposed to be watching over human beings, but they don't. They corrupt human beings. And then you get this whole mythology about angels going on. And because of the fornication of the watchers who fornicated with the daughters of men and took wives and made it the beginning of purity. So when you read, I'll tell you what's interesting about this. When you read Genesis 6 
and said the sons of God married the daughters of men and they had the Nephilim and the giants. People go, man, what's up with that? Well, I, I can't tell you that this is true, but I'll tell you in 200 BC, the Jews thought they were angels. You see why this might be useful? It's not inspired, but it's interesting, isn't it? That 200 BC, they thought that, they understood that as angels. They might be right, they might be wrong, but that's the kind of thing that you see. This one is wild. So the life of Adam and Eve is a book that says, hey, Genesis 1 about Adam and Eve in the fall does not have anywhere near enough information. I'm gonna tell you the whole story. Well, it is wild, but I'll just got a little bit here. So Adam was talking to his sons. He said, boys, listen to me. When God made me and your mother and he placed us in paradise, gave us every tree bearing fruit to eat, he said, regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of paradise, don't eat it. Moreover, God gave part of the Garden of Eden to me and part to your mother. <laughs> I don't know if this is a divorce settlement or I don't know what this is, okay? But you know, part, the north part was mine and the east part was hers. But you can see why, obviously, this is not considered inspired but it's interesting that, that this is what was being written during the time, and I'm not telling you every Jew read it, but these are the writings during that time. And I wanted you to see the diversity of the writings, all the way from just seriously copying the Old Testament books to modern fiction, you know, in, in Jewish historical fiction. So, question. Was the intertestamental 400-year period prophesied or mentioned in Scripture? Uh, good question. Specifically, not to my knowledge. It's not like God said, okay, this is Malachi signing off. I will speak to you in 400 years. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's not. But the Jews thought, well, this is a quiet period. God hasn't sent any prophets. And when you say prophets, think preachers more so than just predictors, you know. And so... Uh, I don't think they were prepared for that quiet time, but Daniel's prophecy reassured them. And as they saw it playing out, they go, oh my gosh, I read Daniel's prophecy and those Babylonians, they were the kingdom, one of those kingdoms. And then the Persians, and here we are living under the Greeks. The Greeks must be third. I wonder who the fourth kingdom is. And you see what I'm saying? So they, they had a rough roadmap but it didn't have any dates or times on it. So to my knowledge, they did not know that there would be that time, but they kind of had a roadmap of world history, enough to know that as things happened, during that time, the Jews could say, we are not hearing from God, but he predicted. He didn't predict, he controls it, but I mean, he told us this would be rolling out. And he told us at the end of this chain of four kingdoms, the Messiah was gonna show up. And so it kept them hoping. It kept them connected with God. But they had to exercise faith because they weren't hearing from uh, the prophets like they did the 12 minor prophets at the end. So great question. So that's a quick survey of the literature between the Testaments. You can see why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important because they corroborate the Bible that you have and they're thousand-year-older copies. And the detective story about those Qumran people and why they hit them and how in the world did they stay preserved for 2,000 years is miraculous. I mean, people, the Jews would consider this, God did this. God saved these copies of our book for us, right? 
And then you see the Septuagint, which is as things change, the Jews translate that into Greek, and that was a great thing. In fact, some, I forgot to tell you this, in the New Testament, because it's written in Greek, you can tell many times whether the Apostle Paul or John or James, when they quote the Old Testament, you can tell if they're quoting from the Greek Old Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament. And so oftentimes you can tell they were reading the Septuagint in Greek. They, they, they may not have all read Hebrew. Paul certainly did. But my point is, is that they were using that Bible. And it's great, there's no difference in it, but you can tell that's a direct quote from the Greek Septuagint. That's a translation of the Hebrew. And so they were using it and it, it transitioned them. We do the same with the New Testament. It was in Latin for a long time and then it exploded into, Martin Luther translated it into German and Wycliffe translated it into English and explodes into all these languages. And of course it's easier for us because we have the printing press, right? Before that, it was laborious hand copying. And then the Apocrypha, you can see the Apocrypha are almost a mistake. I mean, in one sense, it's like, why did those Jews in Alexandria have to include those books? You just goofed us up for 2,000 years. But in all seriousness now, at least you know, what are they? They're just extra books that were written during that time that we do not consider to be inspired, but they're interesting and they're useful. And they were probably read by the Jews, just like you might read a left-behind book or you might read a devotional book. And then the pseudepigrapha are just plain old wild, wacky, and fun. And so it, you, you get the whole gamut of what the Jews were reading. Well, I think the Jews have had enough independence. And so next week, the Romans are gonna show up. And so while they threw off the Greeks for a little bit, in the meantime, Rome has been quietly growing for a long time, and they begin to mop up what's left of Alexander the Great's empire. 300 years after he established it, that Greek empire lasted 300 years. That's a long time. It's longer than America's been around. So I want you to get a sense of the, of the time periods here. But in 63 BC, Pompey the Great, Roman general, who was a rival of Julius Caesar. He and Caesar duped it out to see who was gonna be the key guy. And so he came and conquered this part of the world. And as of 63 BC, the Jews weren't ruling themselves anymore. And they didn't again until 1948. And that's an interesting story. So next week, the Romans and the fourth kingdom of Daniel and you will see how that comes into play that God chose that time for the Messiah to come and we'll talk about why. So next week, the Romans. Thanks guys.